Good morning. It's a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. And uh, when uh, Pastor Mike called me, he said, Any, you know, I just can't, I can't make it. And uh, he sounded pretty bad. And uh, so pray for him. But I said, no problem, I have a little, little thing right here. <laughs> and uh, anyway, looking forward to it this morning. But turn in your Bibles, if you would, please, to... Uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. And stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. Stand if you would, if you can. We're going to read down through verse 23. And when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that, has been con- for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a, f- bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that, was, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this morning that we can come and consider the glorious story, the glorious truth that you indeed have sent your son to come to this earth. And you sent him as a little babe, Lord, and you declared that indeed through him you would be with us and all the radiance of your glory would be presented to this world through Christ Jesus. We thank you for that truth. May we celebrate that this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I don't know about you, but uh, probably all of you have an idea in mind of what your, what your favorite Christmas was in, in your whole life. Now, some of you don't have to think back very far if you're five years old, but uh, for some of us, we have a few more. If you reflect for just a minute, what was your very favorite Christmas and what made it so meaningful to you? And it's all around, for me, uh, family, being together, uh, joyous times of sharing, uh, great food, of course. But when it's all said and done, perhaps the greatest Christmas for each one of us was the Christmas when we first realized what has come in our society to be known as the true meaning of Christmas. And in fact, for the believer, that is the focal point of what Christmas is all about, the true meaning of Christmas. What does it really mean? If we think about that, that ought to be the greatest Christmas for us, and maybe that greatest Christmas for us is the one we have every single year. As we stop and reflect upon that which God did, that indescribable gift that brought the Savior into this world. And as we grow in Christ, hopefully each year we have maybe a new glimpse of what it really means that Christ sent his son to die on the cross for us. What it really means that Christ became sin for us. What it really means that God came incarnate, that the Emmanuel was brought to this earth, and God is indeed now with us. And for me, this Christmas, uh, that's become maybe a little come into focus a little more clearly as I reflected upon the glory of the Lord. With this message to you this morning had a title. If you look at your bulletin, it's not there, but you could scratch it in. It would simply say, The Glory Returns. The glory
glory returns. Through Christ, he began a process of restoration of his people, the restoration of all who would name his name, of the very presence of the most holy God upon this earth. That's what it means when it says God with us. I want to give you some contrast this morning, so bear with me as we create and as we look at God's Word and we see an incredible contrast of loss and of uh, desperation, of sorrow, as a description is given to us a couple places in Scripture of the very glory of God, the presence of God leaving this earth. And maybe one of the saddest stories in all of Scripture is found in 1 Samuel chapter 4. And I'd ask you to turn there this morning, if you would, please. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Actually, I'm going to... And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it tells the story of uh, the priest Eli's sons. They were Hophni and Phinehas. And they were among the most disreputable sinful, evil leaders in Israel's history of disobedience. In fact, if you turn back a couple chapters, I want to start there in in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And we'll get to chapter 4 in a minute. It says, Now the sons of Eli, this is 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And it says, The sons of Eli were worthless men. How would you like to be recorded in Scripture as a worthless man? They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests with the people. And when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Now, the priests were allowed to partake of the, of the offerings that were offered to the Lord. It was part of their, uh, the tithe that went to uh, care for and provide for uh, the uh, means that they needed to live. But it says also before they burned the fat, the priest servant would come over and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now, the, the meat that was given to the priests, which was holy meat, was to be meat that had already been cooked, the meat that had been offered as an offering or prepared for an offering. Instead, Phineas and Hophni would come up to the priest and say, don't even bother, I want it now. And if you won't give it to me now, I'll take it from you. I'll take it by force. And it says, The sin of the young man, verse 17, was very great before the Lord. For the men despised the offering of the Lord. And this is the heart of that which broke the Lord's heart. For the people of Israel, and particularly in this case, the leaders of Israel, the priests, in the form of Phineas and Hophni, despised God and despised the offering. Now, if you go down to... Uh, Verse 24 of this chapter, it says now, um, starting with verse 22, actually. Now, Eli was very old, that's their father, and he heard that all his sons were doing to all Israel. And they lay with women who were uh, served at the doorway of the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from these people. You can even imagine the evil that was being described here. 
And he says in verse 24, No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. So now we come with this evil in the camp, as it were, of Israel. We come to chapter 4 of 1 Samuel. And the Philistines are now prepared to attack the camp where the Israelites were, were residing. And in chapter 4, um, <clears throat> beginning in verse 3, when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that they may come up among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Well, what had happened is that there had been a battle. The Philistines had come up against the camp, and 4,000 uh, of the Israel's warriors were killed. And they said, What are we going to do? I know what we're going to do. We're going to take the Ark of the Covenant which should be residing in the tabernacle and we're going to take it out of the tabernacle and we're going to bring it up and put it on the front lines of the battle and that will protect us because the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of the Lord. So God will surely be with us. And what they did is they took this most holy thing and they decided to make it a good luck token. They decided to make it a little, a little metal they put around there, you know, a, a, that would, would give them safety. So they put it out before, before them, and surely the Lord will deliver us from the power of our enemies. And in verse 4 of chapter 4, it says, So the people sent to Shiloh, and, from the, uh, and there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the host, who sets above the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Who would put them up to it? Phinehas and Hophni. Let's take the Ark of the Lord into battle. And it happened as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into camp that all of Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And um, they said, hey, we're going to be toast here. Uh, nothing like this has ever happened before. I mean, it's a paraphrase, the toast part. But look in verse 8, it says, Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptian and all kinds of plagues and wilderness. Then, interesting thing happened. Instead of running away from Israel in the fear of the Lord, in verse 9 it says, Take courage, this is the Philistines speaking, and be men, O Philistines, let you become, lest you become slaves of the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Now look at verse 11. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What did the ark of the covenant represent? The ark of the covenant which uh, contained the Ten Commandments uh, and the rod that Moses uh, 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 turned into serpents before the Pharaoh. Uh, And and on the top of the Ark of the Covenant were these two cherubim, cherubim, uh, angels of God, as it were, represented the very presence of God in Israel. That God, it was like God's throne upon the earth. And people knew and were reminded that God was with them in the Ark of the Covenant. 
And when the ark was taken, God's presence was removed from Israel. And so we find this incredibly sad story, beginning in verse 19 of the same chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 4. Phineas' wife was about ready to give birth. And we'll read this beginning in verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, that is Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was pregnant and about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she kneeled down and gave birth for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And then verse 21, She called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark was taken and because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been taken. I think that's one of the saddest stories in all of, all of Scripture. Phineas's wife, who apparently loved the Lord or certainly understood what the, what the ark of the covenant meant to Israel. She heard that her husband was killed, her brother-in-law was killed, her father-in-law had died when he heard the news, he fell over backwards and broke his neck. And she knew she was dying. She had, she had given birth, and she was, there were complications. She knew that she was dying. And the midwife tried to comfort her and said, don't be afraid. And she didn't even respond. And then she said, name the boy Ichabod. Now, you don't notice a lot of people naming their kids Ichabod these days, do you? And if you did already, and I don't, haven't heard about it, it's okay. It's a Bible name. But it means glory gone. Glory gone. The glory of the Lord has departed. And then she died. We find a now, later on, um, Israel recovers the Ark of the Covenant, and it ends up in, uh, in Solomon's temple, in the Holy of Holies, and uh, resides there until the Babylonians sweep in under Nebuchadnezzar in uh, the 6th century before Christ, and, uh, excuse me, the 4th century before Christ, and uh, take the uh, Ark away once for all, and we never see it again. But we find a story that before the Ark is taken that is rivals the sadness that we find here in 1 Samuel. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to Ezekiel chapter 8. And this is the story of the glory of the Lord departing Israel for the final time until Christ returns. The 400 and some years of silence after the book of Malachi is written. And if you look in chapter 8 of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 8, Ezekiel had had this, uh, this vision of the appearance of the Lord himself. And uh, he was taken into literally the inner court of the, of, the, uh, of, the, uh, of the temple, but really into the presence of the Lord. And it says in verse 4, And behold, the glory of God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw on the plain. So here we find the very glory of the Lord, Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 4. The glory of the Lord was there, was there in the temple. I want you to turn, if you would, over to the next chapter. I don't have time to do a lot of looking here this morning, but just turn over to Ezekiel chapter 9, in verse 3, and then it says, Then the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub 
on which it had been it had been to the threshold of the temple, and he called to the man clothed in linen, at whose loins was the writing case. The evil in Israel was great. They had worshipped other gods. God had lost patience with Israel. He was about ready to pronounce judgment upon Israel. And the judgment upon Israel was not only that they would be taken into captive by the Babylonians and they would be dispersed over all the world. No, the, the real judgment on Israel was that the glory of the Lord, His very presence, would depart from them. What we find described here now is the glory of the Lord departing from the Holy of Holies. The place that was so holy because God's radiance shone there that the priests themselves could only enter in once a year. And when they did, they had to tie a rope around their ankle. Why? Because if they desecrated the temple in any way, they would die on the spot. And the other priests would pull out their body. So it says the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub. What we find here is the glory of the Lord is now leaving the Ark of the Covenant, leaving the Holy of Holies. And the story is almost as if God is pronouncing the judgment, but he almost doesn't want to. The picture here is that the glory is rising up, but he doesn't want to leave. Have you ever known you have to discipline a child? and You know it has to happen? And then the little one knows it has to happen? And you know you've got to do this discipline, but you don't want to do it. You know the old thing, you know, that this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Son, well, this is exactly, actually, what happened here. The Lord is grieving. The Holy Spirit of God is grieving. He's rising up because of the sin of Israel from the Ark of the Covenant. And it says, the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub. Then you find this progression happen if you move to chapter 10. Uh, well, I want to <clears throat> I I take you to chapter, chapter 10. Look at verse 4, verse 3. And it says, Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered and the cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. And the temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Glory is still there, but where did it go? It says, The glory went up to the threshold of the temple. The glory had now moved from the top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the cherubim were. It now moved to the threshold of the temple, moved into the doorway, moved away. It's moving out. And then it says in verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. The glory now is moving away, moving away from uh, into the doorway now and out the door. And notice here in verse 19, And when the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wills beside them, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. Now where are they? They're outside of the Holy of Holies. They're in the east gate of the temple. The cherubim representing the very glory of the Lord, the attendance to the God the Father, hovered over the east gate of the temple. So get the picture. They rose up from the Ark of the Covenant. They moved into the threshold. They moved into the doorway. They moved to the east gate. Then we find in chapter 11, chapter 11 and verse 22. 
Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the, wheel, with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord hovered over them. Verse 23. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. Now we find the glory of the Lord has moved out from the temple itself and hovered over the hillside beside the temple and looked back over the temple. The picture here is the great grieving of the Holy Spirit, grieving of the Lord and his angels as he left the temple. And it's like leaving one last time and turning back and looking at the temple, but pronouncing judgment upon them. Then after this, the glory is departed, gone for over 400 years from Israel. But there was a promise made, the promise of the coming Messiah, the promise of the Holy One of Israel, the promise of restoration, the promise of renewal, and the promise of forgiveness. What we find here in in chapter uh, 11, go back up a few verses, the promise is, is interspersed in the middle of all of this. Verse 17, Ezekiel 11. Therefore say, thus says the Lord, I shall gather you from the peoples and assemble you out from the countries among which you have been scattered, and I shall give you the land of Israel. What we find here is that judgment, the Holy Spirit, God himself, is leaving Israel, scattering them through all the, wor- through all the world. But I will bring you back. I will gather you from all the nations. Verse 18. And when they come there, they will remove all the detestable things and its abominations from it. And I shall give them one heart and shall put a new spirit within them. And I shall take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And they will walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. In the midst of this tragic story, there's a promise. God will restore Israel. God will call his people back to him. And how will that happen? Well, it's going to happen because the glory will return. The glory will return. So what is this glory? Glory of God is the, um, if you permit the word, the effulgence of all of God's character and holiness. The, uh, the, the display of all that is God his radiance, his majesty, the glory of God. It's the full honor due, the display and recognition by God's people of his holy character and his divine attributes. It is the reflection of God's pure character and his utter and complete and majestic holiness. And so when we come to the birth of Christ, what we really find here in this wonderful announcement to Joseph was that the glory had returned. That's why we read this morning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. This is, of course, a, quote, a quote from, uh, direct quote from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means what? God with us. The glory returns. God is now back among his people. We find uh, the angels in Luke chapter 2 telling the shepherd that the angel of the Lord 
uh, suddenly stood before them. Verse 9 of Luke 2. And the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terribly frightened. The glory returned. The glory shone around them. And the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all the people. For in the, today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying what? Glory to God. Glory to God. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Why glory to God? Because the glory has returned. And when God's glory comes upon his people, comes upon this earth, those who love him, give him glory back. So when the angel said, glory to God, what they're really saying is reflect back the very glory that he has brought back to this earth. It's impossible for ourselves, but we can do it because he has filled us with his glory. Let me just leave you with four things this morning that uh, we can reflect upon around this wonderful, powerful truth of the glory returning. That first, Christ's birth fulfills the very purposes of God's redemption plan. We understand that. That Christ's birth fulfills the purpose of God's redemption plan. And what ultimately is God's redemption plan? The birth of the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, heralded a huge event in the history of God's relationship with his creation and his fallen creation. It fulfilled the very purpose of God's redemption plan from the very beginning, that in sacrificing his son, his only son, God put on full display his majesty, his love, his glory, in a way that the world had never seen and could never begin to comprehend. And they could fully see his glory personified in his son, the Lord Jesus By the way, this glory that we see in the Lord Jesus is still just a glimpse of the glory of the Lord, not the, not the full thing. We'll see it fully when we someday stand before him face to face. We see through a glass darkly, but someday we'll see him face to face. Secondly, God's redemption plan reveals the fullness of his glory. Christ's birth brings to the forefront the central reason for God's redemption plan. Not simply to say, but I don't want to diminish in any way the the glorious truth of salvation. I mean, that's what, we re, that's what Christ's coming is all about, that we might be saved. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And to as many as receive him, to give, them gave he the power to become the sons of God. To as many who believe in his name. But more than that, it is what is the purpose of salvation? The purpose of salvation isn't simply that we escape hell. The purpose of salvation, the very focal purpose of salvation is that God might receive all the glory. In our coming to him and him saving us through his son, the fullness of his majesty is revealed. The birth of the Messiah and ultimately the Messiah's sacrifice on the cross displayed God's glory as no other event in history or in the ages to come could ever do. I think that's why the angels sing glory to God in the highest. We find this theme repeated throughout Scripture. God declaring his glory and demanding that his people give him glory. And revealing, once again, his glory in Christ's appearing. Let me just uh, 
uh, stop for a moment and, 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 and lay a little background here of the importance of God's glory and the uh, revelation of God's glory throughout Scripture. Uh, if you're real quick with the fingers, you can follow along, but I'm going to go pretty quickly. In Exodus chapter 16, Exodus chapter 16, it says, and it came about, in verse 10, it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel, that they looked uh, toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. God's presence appeared to Israel in the wilderness. In Exodus 24, it says uh, that the glory of the Lord, in verse 16, that the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Those of you who are following, that's Exodus 24, 17. The glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. We find that repeated, by the way, uh, in... Uh, in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 12 in verse uh, 28 the glory of the Lord is like a consuming fire we find also in Exodus uh, 33 in verse 18 it says uh, Moses is on the uh, uh, the mount now and, and uh, 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 the mountaintop with the Lord with the Lord himself and he's to receive the Ten Commandments and Moses uh, it says that, Mo that God spoke to Moses like friend to friend and Moses, feeling pretty comfortable before the Lord, says, Lord, I pray, show me your glory. The one thing that Moses asked for was that he might see the very glory of the Lord. Think about it. What's the one thing that we want to ask the Lord to reveal to us? Lord, show us your glory. We want to see all the glory of God that we might give him back the glory. But the Lord in His grace said, well, actually, uh, no man can see the fullness of my glory. If you see my glory, what's going to happen? You will surely die. Why? Because you have not been purified. The Lamb has not come. The sins have not been taken away. And you have not been made perfectly righteous yet. But he says, I'll do this for you. Uh, in Exodus 33, verse 22, he says, And it'll come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. God says, I'll show you a glimpse of my glory. But you've got to turn around. And when Moses came down uh, from the mountain, he didn't even realize it, but his face shone with the very Shekinah glory of the Lord, the very presence of the Lord. So great that uh, he had to cover his face. And of course, we know that God displays His glory throughout history in so many ways. It's everywhere we turn. Uh, Psalm 19, uh, the heavens are telling the glory of, the, of God and their expanses declaring the work of His hands. In Psalm 57, 11, be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. But ultimately, the glory of the Lord is displayed in the birth of His Son the Lord Jesus, most majestically, most powerfully. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we find this um, picture of glory given to the Son from the Father. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in verse 17, it says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. 
God the Father, the majestic glory, giving to his Son honor and glory from himself. And so the birth of of Christ was the beginning of the restoration of God's glory on the earth, God coming incarnate to the earth. And Christ's ultimately return and establishment of his heavenly kingdom will display the fullness of his glory. Jesus' glory is described, I think, most powerfully in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says this, And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. All the fullness of God's glory resided in Jesus. Well, fourthly, God compels all who love him to give him glory. God compels all who love him to give him glory. That's why Paul prayed for the Ephesians when he bowed his head that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. It's Ephesians 3, reading verse 16. That he would, he's praying now for the Ephesians. He would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. What's that mean? That means all the fullness of God's majesty would be displayed in the believer so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints which is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. All of his glory. And then, here's this benediction that, that uh, Paul concludes this prayer for, with the, for the Ephesians in verse 20 of Ephesians 3. He says, Now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond that which we could ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is the prayer. In Him, through Him, and through us, all those who are called by His name, that we might reflect His glory. And so glorify our Father who is in heaven. And ultimately, the ultimate uh, expression of our salvation is that the believer might be glorified. In uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, it says, In in, uh, whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also, what? Glorified. Glorified. What does that mean? That we would be glorified and that we shall be glorified. It means that we will receive all the fullness of God's glory reflected in our lives. And that all the fullness of God's glory has been expended for our salvation, brought to bear on our salvation through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, the prayer is simply this, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and what? Glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's why Jesus prayed 
that God's glory would be manifest in the church, in each one of us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's glory resides in his people. And God prayed that the glory would be undefiled. I mean, Jesus prayed the glory would be undefiled and fully displayed among his people. In Jesus' prayer for his disciples just before he went on the cross in the Garden of Eden, he prayed this in John 17. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those, for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, and that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now John 17, 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to him, to them, that they may be one just as we are one, and I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfect in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. How do we share the story of Christmas? How do we share the good news? How do we communicate the true story of Christmas, the real meaning of Christmas? We proclaim God's glory. On the birth of his son, Emmanuel, God with us, the glory has returned. And we show forth that glory in how we live he lives and works in us. Someday, we pray. And we know that the entire world, in all of creation, will give God the glory. Revelation 5.13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. May we reflect his glory even as we proclaim his glory. Lord, we thank you for this time, these moments that we can come together to share the wonderful truth that in Christmas and the birth of Christ, the glory has returned. May that be displayed in our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.